welcome to the Inspiring Social Entrepreneurs Podcast. My name is Fergal Byrne. Every week, I talk to inspiring social entrepreneurs and changemakers dedicated to building a better world. Here, they tell their stories, the highs and the lows, and share what they have learned to help other social entrepreneurs and changemakers on their journeys. Thank you very much, Selena, for joining me today on the Inspiring Social Entrepreneurs Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. So, before we begin, can you tell us a little bit about Glass Wing, its origins, and, and maybe, yeah, I guess a snapshot, a bit of an overview of, of you know, uh, where you are today? Sure. So, Glass Wing is, I'm from El Salvador originally, and Glass Wing is an organization that we started by three of us. And the vision was always to see how we could address the root causes of violence and poverty to really figure out what the, how we could address these challenges at the base. And we tried to do that from the onset by bringing together government, civil society, and private sector to, to implement education programs and public health programs centered around what the priorities of communities were and, and acting based on those. So Glasswing has always had that vision of being really responsive to local context. We're Salvadoran organization that's now expanded from our headquarters here to nine other countries in Latin America and working in New York City with migrant youth. So now we're, we, we have a team of about 250 people, um, almost all of whom are from the countries in which we work in Latin America. And we have impacted directly in 13 years, about 1.1 million people. And we mobilize a lot of volunteers. We work with so many people who commit time to working in communities with communities. So we have, I think we've had over 120,000 volunteers now participate. So we're really excited. It's been a huge learning curve and it continues to be a learning curve. Can you talk a little bit about um the roots of the problem you talked about this uh, so, so so the uh, poverty and the violence and and how important it was to understand not just that this is happening but how and why it's happening and how that informs your approach yeah to really i mean so many times in in our work we address the symptoms of problems and for us it was really important to understand, I mean, two of the three founders came from a humanitarian aid background, working in complex emergencies and disasters, so which were very responsive. So when we switched into this kind of development work, we really wanted to understand why this was happening. And particularly, Latin America is, I think it has about 8% of the world's population and 37% of its homicides. So uh, proportionately, we have a huge amount of violence. And for us, we, we just felt like we can't really address many other challenges if we're not addressing this issue of violence. And the impact of violence on trauma and just the, everything else in, in a person's life. And, and, and then the other aspect of it is how do you understand a problem without really speaking to the people that are most affected by it? So it's been really a key to our work to sit down constantly and really involved from the beginning of, of just any kind of program that we're developing to speak with communities with young people who's the majority of the population we work with are young people and, and children and understand the challenges that they perceive how they perceive those challenges and then come together kind of co-create what these potential solutions can be and to be honest sometimes it's you know you try something and you have to go back you have to iterate you have to change it but i think that constant feedback loop of really trying to figure out what the root causes are when we're not used to thinking that way necessarily. And because 
violence is about survival, it's not, it's not easy to stop and say, okay, what's leading us to this? And, and when you think about violence, violence is perpetuated by exposure to violence, right? So nobody's, you know, really born a violent person or born, you know, I want to get involved in crime and, you know, dangerous living. Nobody, it's, it's more of a contextual thing and, and an exposure, an issue of exposure. So if you, we started looking at that, how does that happen when in, in a region, um, how do we stop that perpetuation of violence, whether it's intrafamiliar violence or it's gender-based violence. So we really have been trying to tease out what those causes are. And a lot of it we've seen has to do with our inability as a system, as countries, as communities to address the consequences of exposure. So when you're exposed to violence, um, if you're, for example, if you're a victim of violence, you're five and a half times more likely to be involved in perpetuating violence. So, you know, we started to think, okay, we need to address violence that way. We need to address violence by, by mitigating the consequences of exposure and trauma. So we can learn to understand the symptoms of being exposed to violence, the anxiety, the fear, the um, hypervigilance, and manage those. So, you know, we've been working a lot on the mental health side because we really think that it's a space that hasn't been addressed enough in the context of violence. Of course, there's impunity and there are all these other structural and systemic issues um, that are, you know, governmental and, uh, and, of course, lack of opportunity. But really, we felt like one of the biggest issues was this issue of trauma and our inability to, to really leverage those resources and communities to promote healing and connection, which is needed to address the root cause of, of, of violence. Very interesting. So you put together programs and can you talk about the kind of programs? So we, we started working with communities to identify what resources already exist in communities. So, and, and whether those are public resources or community resources. And among those are public schools and public health facilities and community centers, for example. So our programs take place within existing resources and communities and natural kind of conveners. So the public school for us is a center of community of sorts where, where everybody knows where it is, um, if they've gone to school, if they haven't, if they're the parents. So out of the school, we run programs that are focused on positive youth development. They're focused on building life skills, resiliency. They're, you know, kids are already so resilient here, but we want to build that even more. We work with volunteers from the community, staff from the community, and we try to develop this, their protective factors that kids need to be able to mitigate their exposure to risks in the communities or the, what, you know, what they may be seeing in terms of community violence. We work in some of the communities that face the highest rates of violence in the region. So we run these programs out of the school. You know, they can be art, sports, music, uh, but we also have mindfulness. We have restorative practices. We engage parents through community cafes that are run by teachers and parents together. We have mental health committees. So all these resources, the public school becomes, takes an even bigger role as a center of community to build this kind of ecosystem, right? That, that's informed in trauma, understands trauma. And we start having kind of this scaffolding that is built by the community itself. And it also is a scaffolding around young people. And similarly in the public health system, we have mental health programming predominantly. So we train public health 
staff within the government systems on trauma and understanding trauma for themselves as health self-care, but also when they're working with communities to understand and be able to detect um, early whether there may be situations of violence or risk and be able to intervene and activate kind of you know, different referral pathways or supports. So whether that's girls and gender programming or whether it's issues of violence that need to be reported. So we really try to work within systems to strengthen systems um, and not create these parallel structures or programs that, that don't fit into an existing context. Wow, very interesting, very interesting. And, and how do you measure the success of these programs? I mean, over what kind of time frame? It seems there has there seems to be uh, a lot of work done in the area of trauma generally, I think, in the, in the world of psychology and psychotherapy and healing and so forth. Uh, to what extent are those resources available or to what extent have you developed your own approaches? I think, you know, we, we've been in working in communities for a long time and we have these constant feedback loops that I mentioned. So uh, there are so many incredible trauma programs. For us, it was really one of the most important aspects of our work is to not make it clinical. So the idea was to recover traditional ways that communities come together to support each other and heal. And we looked, of course, we constantly look at models all over the world and see what's working and talk to communities. But we wanted to see how we can make almost democratize, right? Like get, everybody should have access to mental health care. And, and how do we help provide the knowledge and skills at a community level so we don't need to have clinicians or mental health professionals everywhere, given that that's, that's not really feasible at this time. So what's interesting is drawing from trauma models from around the world, but also drawing from communities and their understanding of what helps them heal because it's unique. I used to do humanitarian aid and you know what's, what we did in, you know, or what we saw in Aceh and the tsunami is very different than what you can see in Liberia or other parts of the world. So it's understanding the context and what healing means in each and each unique context and how people perceive their role in that as community members. So we measure that. We have different ways of measuring it. Of course, we have a really, we have a really robust monitoring and evaluation system. So because we want to know that what we're aiming to do, we're actually accomplishing. So we have a lot of indicators for positive youth development, resiliency indicators, violence reduction indicators, um, perception of self, uh, how you perceive the control you have over your life and your environment. So all, we have all these indicators for young people that we measure at the beginning of the program and you know, the middle and the end. And we do that regularly and we constantly evolve that. We also have, in, you know, we look at how communities are perceiving how they feel, how they perceive the level of safety, um, trust. And from a mental health standpoint, we also have, I mean, we do this through surveys, through focus groups, through interviews, but we, we have instruments that collect information on your, your emotional state. Do you feel better able to cope with the adversity that you're facing? How do you manage the physical symptoms and the emotional symptoms of of trauma or what, you know, again, trauma wasn't really a word that came up that often here in yeah. the past. So it's, it's also been, when you're introducing language, you can also introduce what you want to address more easily. Very interesting. I get the sense that the communities you work with have different values and priorities. How do you approach these differences in the communities you work with? 
Right. I mean, it's absolutely different. I think it's almost like in business when you talk about clients and you're targeting different clients. At the end of the day, I think our work should be about that, right? If you're client-centered, if you're community-centered, you're really responding to each community's priorities. And sometimes you think their priority may be violence reduction, but their priority is economic opportunity. And, and you know, so I think, I think the approach is the most important. So you can't just really copy paste something you're doing in one place and put it in another. I think the approach when you, when your approach is to start and to ask questions as opposed to bringing um, one specific intervention or another, it makes it a lot easier because in a conversation you can arrive at, you know, people will be able to communicate what, what they prefer to focus on and, and what their challenges are. And sometimes we'll start with conversation in one place and we'll end up in another. But I think that conversation needs to be had not just once, but on an ongoing basis. And, and that's the best way we've found as a team to make sure that we're responding to the unique contexts and priorities. And, and also like, what are the stakeholders there? Who's there? Like, does the church play more of a role in this community? Even what church? Is it the Catholic church, the evangelical church? So we need to understand who the players are. How much of a role does the school have depends also on the director of the school and, and working with, with that and understanding that and, and staying present for longer than just, you know, a year or a short-term project. It's really staying there for long enough that we can understand enough to access the supports that, that people want. Uh, and need. Are you saying you need to be willing to take this longer time frame? Absolutely. I mean, one of the things that I think we can't expect things to change that quickly, particularly when we're talking about violence, it's intergenerational, it's community, you know, it impacts communities on such a deep level. And when we think about, you know, soldiers coming back from, from war and, you know, the PTSD, these levels of exposure to violence that a lot of children and adolescents have, they're really high. So building those you know, helping them acquire the tools to manage and adults. Sometimes adults, it takes even longer. Um, it, it takes time because your body reacts. It's in survival mode. Literally, it's not just an emotional thing. It's a physical thing. You're in flight, fight, or freeze. Your brain is wired to be surviving. So that can't change overnight. Um, and, and it's, you know, we need to work on, on the intrapersonal and equip looking at all the evidence around the world, help equip people with the understanding that they're not going crazy, that they're not bad people, that they're, and also the tools to manage that. And then at a community level, also raise the awareness around trauma and violence so we can work from a place of empathy. So if someone's behaving a certain way, it's a behavior, it's not the person, it's not, I think there's a researcher that, that in the United States that about 13 years ago, I think it was Sandy Bloom or someone who worked with her, they said, you don't say, what did you do or what's wrong with you? You say, what happened to you? So it's really shifting the mindset in a community to think about people's behavior as opposed to identifying a bad or a good person. And that, that's a really important shift, especially when someone's done you wrong in an extreme way. So that takes time. And I think it takes 
it takes years. It doesn't just take six months. It takes years. And I think building trust takes years. And, and for us to work in a community, we have to have, you know, access and, and the community has to want us there. So this takes a while. And, and we think it's important to commit and not just go in and deliver some, you know, program or project and then leave. Yes, yes. Well, that brings up a, an important question now about funding. There is a tradition of projects like that. I'm not saying in, in the trauma area, but of projects that, you know, are time delimited. Uh, they come in and the project's done and then they go away again and so forth. How have you been funded? And uh, you talk about some of the challenges. Sure. There's, I mean, there's so many challenges with, with funding also. And I think, like you said, particularly with long-term funding, with the long-term view, we're funded by different, we have different sources of funding. So we're funded by private sector partnerships when we help companies invest in the communities around where they operate. We, we work to develop with communities the programs. We have government funding, US government and other government funding. We have philanthropic funding, but the philanthropic, and we call it unrestricted because when you have corporate or government funding, typically it's for a specific program for a specific period of time, whereas philanthropic funding is more flexible. It, oftentimes it's longer term. And those are, you know, the, what we call unrestricted funding is the ideal because when you need to shift or pivot, as we've all had to do during this crisis, COVID, philanthropic funding tends to be the more flexible. And interestingly for us, you know, now we're doing, we're mobilizing about $14 million a year for the programs in the region. And that is a mixture of those. The philanthropic funding is still the smallest percentage, but oftentimes the most important percentage for us in our work. And I, another challenge in the funding is that for the size, we're a local organization. So that uh, we're registered in each country, but our headquarters is in El Salvador. So that can either be a benefit or or it can be a challenge depending on what the funders are looking for, because oftentimes funders would rather fund an organization from Europe or the US, um, even if, the, if it's much more efficient to be a local organization and you're permanently, you know, you have a permanent state. The other thing is we're, we're at a size where we're not grassroots, but we're not, you know, a huge organization like Save the Children or IRC or, um, other big international NGOs. So when you're in the middle and you're a local organization, it's a little bit confusing sometimes for donors. So for us, it's been a challenge. And obviously partnerships with institutions like Skoll and Ashokran that have elevated the profile of the organization and done all the due diligence, that definitely helps. But I think it's constantly explaining that yes, an organization can be from the global south and work regionally and, and have really high standards of quality and transparency like BRAC and many others. But it is a different positioning, right? As a social entrepreneur, uh, or a social enterprise, right? We always have to clarify that, that, that we are local, but we also work yes. internationally. And, and do you get uh, funds from the local communities or do you, how do you address that question? We don't get funding from local communities. We do in, in, in kind. We work with communities through in kind services mostly. For example, if we're doing infrastructure work, uh, we, we have support from the communities. We do hire a lot from the communities where we work. And we have a lot of volunteers who, who are involved mostly in our after school programs that, that they run the programs for the kids. But we don't, we actually do not ask for cash investments from communities. We have from local government and other local institutions, but not from the residents themselves.
Yeah, yeah. There's often a tension in social enterprise when considering selling services, consultancy and the like to fund ongoing operations. Have you had to deal with this? Personally, and I think as an organization, we tend to be really open-minded about those different approaches to development. And I do think it's important for communities. It's it's dignifying too, and I think it's important. Nevertheless, we the space we have thought about it in is, for example, when we when we're our community schools program that I was mentioning earlier with the after school programs, when we are in situations where, for example, if it's become really high risk and the donors aren't able to fund it anymore because of the level of risk or they're, you know, they, they don't want their employees to go because so many of our, our volunteers are also corporate volunteers. Uh, we have talked about that. Like, is would there be a mechanism? Because there's one staff member called a, a school coordinator, which is usually from the community. And we do have a paid staff at the school. So we have thought about it. We're like, well, what if communities as a school, what if parents contributed to that salary to maintain those, you know, that, that position so the programs can continue. Um, but, you know, we haven't gotten to a point where we're, where we're where we have to do that and want to do that yet because the money that families give to, to the school, which is usually voluntary contributions because public education is free by law, they they're there to help you know build an infrastructure or help with other programs or help cover other staffing needs. So we don't want to compete with other priorities when we're able to to fund that, and we'd rather get maintain that community engagement in other ways and helping us guide the programming and also through volunteerism. Absolutely, absolutely. Can you tell us a little bit about your personal journey to become a social entrepreneur? Now, it's, as you say, it's, a, it's not a small grassroots organization. There's quite a bit of uh, uh, management that needs to be done and how you, you, on your journey to, I guess, become more managerial. As a social entrepreneur, and I've, I've met many others, we never start, like social entrepreneurs are never doing anything alone in our case there's three founders and then there's our whole team i'm a terrible manager terrible terrible i'm not a kind of an operations person so i i my background is technical it's in public health and social work uh, i love to develop and design programs i love working with communities with different partners government community private sector so my role is actually you know the financial aspect is not my strength. So I think there's, there's, that's why it's such a team effort. There's a role for everybody. And, and it's for me, I, as in that kind of an ideas person and, and vision person and team, team um, kind of creative co-design person, I, I definitely don't have much to do at all with the financial aspects or the managerial aspects, which are really challenging. So one of my founders, really runs the operation, runs the organization. I would probably have already spent all of our funding immediately, <laughs> for example. So it's never, I feel like, you know, even though sometimes social entrepreneurs are the focus of an organization, I, I think there's, I, I feel like this organization would not exist were it not for all, all the founders and the, and the whole team, each country director, uh, and each team within their department, really, there's our organizations really decentralized in terms of decision making about programs and what should be done locally. So, you know, I think I think that's necessary because it keeps you agile and it keeps you honest as an organization. So the further I am from something, the less I'm going to be able to figure out how to address it. So it really is a lot of people. <laughs> yeah. 
can you talk about the decision when you set up at the, the beginning to become a social enterprise rather than maybe a kind of NGO or some other kind of I structure? I don't know that much about social entrepreneurship when we, when, when, when I left the humanitarian aid world. I started reading, um, you know, Ashoka and Bill Drayton, and I started learning about organizations that were investing in social entrepreneurs, school and others. But really, I think more than knowing the term social enterprise, when we started, well, we wanted to, we started the year of the financial crisis, like around the financial crisis, so 2007. So we had no choice. The only way we would survive is to find ways to generate income. So it was almost like we fell into a model that applied business principles to nonprofit work because we otherwise we wouldn't have survived. And here in Latin America and Central America, in particular El Salvador, there was the social enterprise wasn't really, it wasn't a term that came up and people weren't used to that. So it was actually very confusing for our partners. They didn't really understand why, so how we worked, how we partnered with businesses to generate income that would then help subsidize other programs. It really was trial and error for us, to be honest with you. And I think it was a, this is how we're gonna survive and be sustainable and also maintain our independence. We didn't wanna be dependent on one donor or three donors. We wanted to maintain our independence and understanding that, uh, we understood that, that that would require having different funding streams and thinking differently about how we did this. And that's why I think we also talk about our communities, we think about it as a client, like this is who, you know, you're providing a service essentially, even if they're not paying for it with cash, we need to respond to what communities our clients really prioritize. And also we have clients that are businesses in the traditional sense, like we help them do their, you know, implement and develop their strategic social investment. So we almost fell into it, you know, as, and as we go, we're still, evolving. Can you talk about that side of it? So what services would you offer a corporation? So we have a couple different. We started because there was the CSR and the, um, you know, shared value. All these terms didn't really come up at the time. I think they were more in academic circles. So we started first with very simple. We started offering corporate volunteering projects. So instead of going to an orphanage and playing with the children and we, you know, we're like, Ooh, I don't know if that is, okay, like we don't, we don't want to do that. So why don't we, if they, you know, why don't we offer this service where they'll pay for a volunteer project, but instead of going to play with children, why don't we invest that money to work with the community on rebuilding the bathrooms or fixing the kitchen or fixing the roofing. So we started doing volunteer projects that engaged community with corporate volunteers that were one-off projects, but it created this really neat space for, you know, it, it was an interesting equalizer. Volunteering is an interesting equalizer at that moment where, you know, the skill sets are really different. Um, people are in positions of power, right? So if you're, you know, leading the, the infrastructure work, you're managing these, you know, high level corporate individuals who don't know how to do any of what we're doing at that project. So it's this interesting dynamic where you have a common shared goal. It's not polarizing and you have to finish it within a given period of time. So we started and that really grew quickly. And the corporate volunteering, once we'd start doing that, they're like, oh, what else can we do? We want to invest more in the community. So that simple service not only provided this interesting groundwork for, for increasing levels of trust and engagement between communities and businesses at a very basic level, 
but also open the doors to a bigger conversation. And that's when we started also doing, okay, we can help you develop your a more strategic investment strategy, which is long-term and involves, okay, where are your employees coming from? Where do their families live? How do we make employee engagement more substantial, more profound? And so that evolved to this almost like advising on, on, on social investment strategies. And, and that now we work with companies regionally. We develop kind of sometimes signature programs with companies. And, and that, you know, that's, so that's become a really important part of our work, not just because it's, you know, it, it, it's a funding generate, you know, it's a, it's a funding source, but also because we're starting to help shift the way companies are thinking about their relationship and their role in the community. They're part of the community. They shouldn't just be, you know, this outside, this little island, but that's not really integrated. So it serves multiple purposes. Yeah, that's fascinating. How have you found that in terms of over time, the willingness, the interest? There's a lot of talk about purpose-driven organizations. How have you found the, the genuine interest in, in this? You know, kind of I work? think we, we have companies that we're still doing volunteering with and we haven't really evolved from there. I think it depends on the company. <clears throat> and really young companies tend to be more flexible because they can build this in to their model. And I think younger business owners understand this implicitly. It's almost just part of, they know that this has to become part of the way business is done. With bigger corporations or multinationals, it's, it's a little bit slower, but at the same time, it also gives them at a local level an opportunity to shine globally. So if they're championing interesting work in a small region, um, it can really elevate the profile of the work. And I think, uh, I think they really become interested in it. And then it also improves your relationship with other stakeholders, right? The municipalities, government. So it's, it's really, I think as soon as companies start seeing all the benefits that reduces turnover with their employees, uh, you know, if you allow them to engage particularly to work and volunteer in the communities that they live with, with their children's schools, uh, it, it, it really, it becomes a more interesting part of what they do. So it becomes a more permanent part of the budget. And obviously with huge hits to, if they have a really bad year, usually social programs that are considered, and I'm kind of putting air quotes in social programs are often the first that are cut, but, it, but if we could really make them an important part of what, you know, what they do and make it part of their human resources, their uh, reputation management, all, all these other strategic aspects of business, that's where we want this to fall because it really is. It shouldn't just be a philanthropic action that is only done when you have excess resources or um, when times are good. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned the challenge of funding for, for any social enterprise or for any organization. It's a, it's a big one and an ongoing one. Um, what other challenges uh, uh, has Glasswing faced as a growing organization? And maybe tied into that is this question, is the inevitable question of growth and scaling and what your ideas have been right. on that? Well, you know, one of the biggest challenges I think of a growing organization, well, there's two, I think, that are two of the biggest. One is maintaining, we call it that mystica, maintaining the culture of entrepreneurship, of, of really of agency and team and making sure that as you onboard people, they know that we want them to, we want to be responsive to what they think is, you know, what works and, and understanding that we want leadership within the organization at every level and also make sure that that connection, that understanding that we respond to communities as a priority. So that's kind of the org culture, the kind of open door policy, a really dynamic, interactive culture. That's, that's one thing that's really important and a challenge to always maintain. 
and make sure that leadership in each country doesn't fall into traditional paternalistic kind of boss boss dynamics, which which are weird and sometimes common in, in our part of the world. Um, and the other thing is just management, right? When you have this many people, most most people are out working in the field and management I think is is challenging. I think regional management is challenging. And and then also just making sure that you're taking care of your team also in terms of their well-being when they're exposed to so much human suffering or in their own lives or through work. So that's become something that we need to work on more and more because there is vicarious trauma. When we have interventionists that work in hospitals um, that are working with people who have arrived that are violently injured and hearing all these stories. And so that's, that's I think those three, kind of the culture, the management, and then making sure that as part of that management, you're taking care of the team. I think those are challenges that we're always working on. Yeah. And what kind of support have you had as an individual, but I guess as a team, as you say, as a social entrepreneur? Um, I mean, you mentioned Ashoka, you mentioned uh, other organizations, but how important has that been? And how do you get that support? Yeah, I'm, as an organization, we're always applying for different opportunities and fellowships. And personally, I'm, I always apply for fellowships also as an individual because I feel like you learn so much, particularly from the peer groups. And I was lucky enough to participate in an Obama Foundation fellowship, and we, we received support from um, kind of co co coaches. Um, they weren't like, it was more like a business coaching of sorts. So it wasn't so much an individual personal coach, but it was individual coaching for you as it relates to your role in your organization. And that's been really helpful. I think those fellowships where you can talk about challenges you face with peers from other parts of the world, who are in similar situations at different stages of development of the organizations. That's really, really helpful. Uh, and then I think just, I mean, for me personally, I said, I, I was telling you earlier, I love wildlife and animals. So I, I think I, I try to find opportunities when I can go follow that passion and, and, and be outside and take, you know, trips that have to do with wildlife conservation and nature. I think this work is so fulfilling though. I love it. And it's so challenging that, I, I really can't imagine doing anything else. I'm all, and, and, when, and we're able to have intrapreneurship. So when you're in an organization, there's so many ideas. So we have so many colleagues with so many ideas. So we're able to do so many things that it's dynamic constantly. And even though it's a challenge to explain to people, you know, why are you doing so many things? We're like, well, because we think that all these things are interrelated. <laughs> it also keeps it dynamic. If we were focused on just one thing, I think, I don't think we'd be able to address the challenges we're addressing. And I also think it's, it keeps us on our toes and, and on top of, you know, trends. Yeah. Yes. That's, that's very interesting. It's something you mentioned before about, um, I guess it's, it's not so much innovation, but I, I, I risk taking or being willing to, to try things out. Can you talk a bit about how important that is culturally as an organization? to you know to be willing to try new things and to recognize that things might not work at the same time as recognizing that you're in you know uh, a, a, a problematic area where you know you say violence and people's lives are involved in this and you know you don't want to be getting it wrong too often. right I, I think you're right it is innovation and I think I, I I think that we have to take those risks I mean we have to take those risks because the our civil society and communities, if we're developing something together and we have a, all have a stake in it and we've really been thoughtful about it, if it doesn't work, at least we've, you know, we've 
taken the time to be rigorous about what we think we should try to do. Um, and another thing is, I think it's important when you're innovating. One is when you're innovating, we, we have to innovate because governments can't innovate. And if governments are really important pathways to scale, in, in at least in the work we do in public health, pu public education systems, we have to be the ones to innovate and test things and try things. So then we can document those effectively and evaluate, which is something that's so important. We have to really evaluate them and, and not just be evidence-based, like we say, kind of the jargon in our, but also generate evidence. So if we're trying and innovating and testing, and we're also generating evidence of what works and also what doesn't work, then you're more, you know, you have more of an opportunity to influence policymakers because you're bringing forward, oh, look, we tested this, it didn't really work. Oh, look, we tested this with the communities and this is really effective. I think if you, you know, it's this constant dynamic process, but that does have rigor. It's not just kind of trying anything and everything. It's saying, okay, this worked in uh, Cote d'Ivoire, let's see if it works here. This worked in, I don't know, in Chicago, let's test it. So it's drawing from other people's work, trying and adapting and innovating, and then, and then whether it works or not is still important to know for the whole community of practice. We all wanna know what, you know, what works and what doesn't in what context so we can improve how we address violence, youth development, and all these issues. You talk a little bit about that, uh, the importance of being able to, I guess, document, to show the work you're doing. The last question I was going to ask you was connected to advice for other social entrepreneurs. But uh, presumably this is an important element, is being able to tell your story in a way that, that donors understand that they need, that the way they see the world as well. Yes, I mean, I think definitely, but but so generating evidence and reporting and evaluating, that is expensive. So one piece of advice I would give that we're, we've learned and we're still learning is try to identify people who are interested in research because they'll fund their research. So we can't pay for evaluations, you know, randomized control trials and all these studies that cost $100,000 because we're raising that money to implement the programs. So I think one is I find academic partners and other organizations who are the ones that fundraise to do research or who have an interest in, you know, universities are great partners for that. As long as they're open to really, you know, working with the, what you're trying to accomplish and what you're trying to do and not imposing, you know, their own agendas, but, but contributing to them and adding to them. So that's one thing, find partners. We don't all have to fund everything. The more we work in collaboration, the, the more cost-effective it is for everybody and, and the more information we can generate to, to do a better job in our, in our work. Um, I so I think that's been very helpful for us. In terms of donors, I think we have to start having once we establish good rapport, I think when you're really honest with donors about challenges or when something's going wrong, and, and some foundations and donors are better about this, but bringing it up and establishing a, a more honest conversation as peers, as opposed to us being a beneficiary of their funding and their being the donor, we have to shift that dynamic because we're partners in problem solving as opposed to being a donor and a recipient, really. And if we can shift that, even if it has to be us nudging that a little bit more than the donors but but i think when you have those conversations i think donors feel more engaged and they feel more a part and they feel like they're part of your team so when we're not having the success that we envision to bring that up uh, and to really try to problem solve together or kind of pivot what you're doing i think that's been helpful for us when we started really being more and more 
forthcoming with that kind of information and saying, look, we thought this would work this way, but now the community is saying this, and what do you think? That really helped us because you, you get a higher level of trust and a better connection with your, with your donors, and they really become more partners than, than just donors. So I think I would recommend that, particularly now when we're coming into a really tough time with, with funding um, and the compounded impacts yeah. of COVID over everything that we already face. So I think that those are important to be able to have um, the positioning that we need to have as, as organizations that, and, and a sector that's really important in problem solving, the kind of the innovation and the, we need, we need to play that role in development more actively and be more vocal about that being our goal to really change bigger things, change systems, but to really go deep and not always focus on scale without understanding community priorities and making sure that those are at the forefront of what we do. Yeah, yeah, fascinating. I, but I am interested in this movement towards a more of a systems approach. As part of that, I suppose, is what you've learned about working with partners and building partnerships. Has that been important? I, you know, I think building partnerships, starting with communities and, and, and the residents of communities, partnerships have been absolutely fundamental. I mean, we can't, we don't have, I don't think we have any programs anywhere that don't involve definitely government and community, but almost always private sector as well. So almost every initiative we have involves multiple sectors. Um, and whether that's partnering with other community organizations or big organizations, nonprofits, businesses, it's always, we do leverage public infrastructure a lot in our work and, and public systems because we wanna show that within the system, things can improve. So it's very deliberate. We work within public schools, public hospitals, public clinics, because we want, we want to generate that evidence that says, look, this, we can improve the quality of care by doing A, B, or C. Um, so those partnerships are key for us in, in not only achieving more sustained impact, because if you're the only one involved, if you do have a crisis or run out of funding, then it collapses, right? Whatever you were working on. Whereas if you're working closely with the community, closely with whatever other stakeholders there are in that community, government, businesses, then it just is more robust. It's a more integrated program. Um, and the other, you know, and so I think, and then, and then moving on from kind of the partnerships aspect, obviously you have to be aligned. Um, and, and, and you might not start off aligned, but you have to, before you actually implement, you have to get this shared vision of what you want and the shared intent and purpose. You can't have people or institutions who are trying to do something for a very different reason than you are as an organization. So that's really important. But, but moving on from that to scale is really um, without particularly government partnerships, it's almost impossible to really scale anything in, in most of our countries, unless we were a social enterprise that was selling a product that was consumed directly, like to, you know, kind of to the public. And we're not selling a product to the public, like an energy saving stove or some, you know, water filters. Our approach is different. It's a, we're addressing something different. So we see government as a key partner for scale. And whether it's a government that's easy to work with or not, and they're almost never really easy to work with, it's absolutely essential because they're the overseers, uh, right? So the Ministry of Education serves the majority of the population. If we're trying to reach the majority of the population, we want to partner with Ministry of Education and likewise with Ministry of Health or with migration organizations, 
Um, so we, we absolutely partner with government all the time. Between one administration and the other, it just kind of, we continue that work operationally and also making sure we have this broad MOUs and partnership agreements with government institutions so we can operate within that. Very interesting. Very interesting. I'm sure there was a lot more we could talk about. <laughs> very rich. Very rich. What's next for Glass Wings, Lena? You know, we've been seeing more more recently that we want, just like we look at other parts of the world for models that work well with young people with trauma, with violence, we hope that that the evidence we're generating in the region based on other evidence from other regions. So it all kind of comes full circle, but we want to be able to also apply our learnings and share what we've learned to other contexts, not just Latin America, particularly contexts that also face high rates of violence and youth violence in particular. So I think we're in a position where we, our work will always be focused in Latin America, but we started working in the US with migrant youth from all over the world. And we also see there's a lot of relevance youth violence, whether it's the, you know, the challenges we have with gangs in Latin America or um, violent extremism. There are a lot of similarities, and I think the work with trauma and violence prevention, we can really do more across regions to learn from each other and apply different approaches and models across. And particularly, we're interested in South-South exchanges in the summer, Southern Hemisphere, the Southern Hemisphere, and um, and also from the Southern Hemisphere to the Northern Hemisphere, not always have models and approaches come from Europe and the U.S. down, but also our approaches that we've developed and adapted in our regions of the world and the global, in the Southern Hemisphere, also take those up to help address challenges in the Northern countries. Um, brilliant. Very, very interesting. Uh, full plate there. Um, uh, <laughs> thank you so much, Selena, for, for joining me today and talking about this wonderful work you're doing. And I wish you the very best of success with your ongoing work. Thank you so much for the opportunity. I really enjoyed it. And I appreciate having had the chance to speak with you today. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Inspiring Social Entrepreneur podcast. I hope you found this interview inspiring. Please make sure to visit www.inspiringsocialentrepreneurs.com and subscribe to make sure you don't miss any future podcasts.